Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Some of us don't know what we want to be when we grow up until, well, we're grown up. Many of us start out wanting to be a lawyer or a doctor or a firefighter until we realize we're better suited as mechanics or sales reps or acrobats. Melvin Kaminsky knew what he wanted to be. He just took a little longer getting there than most. But he had a good reason. He had a war to fight. Kaminsky was born in 1926 in a Brooklyn tenement. He literally popped out on the kitchen table. He didn't get to know his father, though, who died at the young age of 34 when Melvin was only two. Instead, he was raised by his mother, three older brothers, and his Uncle Joe. Joe was a cab driver who would often shuttle the doormen at Broadway theaters back to their homes in Brooklyn in exchange for free tickets to the shows. Melvin saw a performance of Anything Goes starring Ethel Merman, and he was hooked. He knew he didn't want to work in the garment industry like other young Jewish men at the time. He wanted something more glamorous. So he started performing for guests at the Borscht Belt Hotel, while he was also learning to play drums from fellow Brooklynite Buddy Rich. But before he had a chance to really break into show business, all hell broke loose. World War II, to be exact. Kaminsky was invited by an army recruiter to take an aptitude test and scored high enough to be sent to the Virginia Military Institute, where he was educated in specific fields, namely electrical engineering, saber fighting, and horseback riding. These would come in handy weeks later after he turned 18 and was enlisted to serve in the Army. He moved around from Fort Dix in New Jersey to Fort Sill in Oklahoma for radio operator training. Then in 1944, Kaminsky made it to France and Belgium as a forward artillery observer in the 78th Infantry Division. But 1945 saw him take on perhaps the most dangerous job of his military career— After being transferred to the 1104th Engineer Combat Battalion, he was tasked with scouting ahead of the tanks, searching for and clearing landmines along the terrain. He even participated in the Battle of the Bulge. And more than once, he was forced to fight for his life against Nazi troops as infantry. But the anti-Semitism he faced wasn't just from the Germans. Being a Jewish kid from Brooklyn made him a punching bag for even his own fellow soldiers. One time in particular, he found himself on the receiving end of some nasty insults from one of his comrades, which prompted an angry Kaminsky to remove the soldier's helmet and bash him over the head with a mess kit. That little stunt earned him a little time in the stockade, but he never forgot his roots in entertainment. At the end of the war, Kaminsky joined the Special Services, where he became a corporal and performed for the troops at Fort Dix. After his service had ended, it came time to find a real job. His mother had lined up a position for him at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, but Kaminsky couldn't imagine working there for the rest of his life. Rather than work on ships, he hopped into a taxi and took it to the Catskills. He cut his teeth as a drummer and a pianist in various hotels and nightclubs, until one night a comedian scheduled to perform at one of the clubs called in sick. That was Kaminsky's chance to really shine. He took to the stage and made the audience laugh with impressions of famous celebrities. He found his calling as a comedian. Come the 1950s, he left the Borscht Belt for television where he got a job writing for a popular variety show run by an old friend from his youth, Sid Caesar. It was called Your Show of Shows, and Kaminsky worked right alongside writers who would go on to great acclaim, 
including playwright Neil Simon and lifelong friend Carl Reiner. But eventually, the world would come to know him as much more than a television writer. He'd create iconic characters, like the 2,000-year-old man, as well as some of the funniest and most enduring films and TV shows of the last 60 years, including Get Smart, The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, and so many more. He was born Melvin James Kaminsky, but when he was a teenager, he adopted a much catchier stage name, which he'd borrowed from his mother's maiden name of Brookman. Who is he? He's comedy legend, Mel Brooks. A good invention shouldn't just solve a problem. It should improve upon the previous solution. When Henry Ford was asked if customers had a say in the development of the Model T, he famously said, If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. The goal of a new invention is to make life easier and reduce friction in completing a task. Edison accomplished this numerous times with items like his incandescent light bulb, phonograph, and mimeograph. He built his career on quality-of-life improvements, unless that life happened to belong to an elephant, of course. But one invention that never really got off the ground involved an upgrade to the common pen. It was part of a complete system, meant to make duplicating documents and drawings much easier. Edison developed the idea over the summer of 1875. The pen really wasn't a pen filled with ink. It was a pen-shaped shaft with a needle at the tip. As the user moved it across a piece of paper, a small motor at the top would drive the needle back and forth like a piston, poking holes to create a stencil. Once the stencil was completed, it would be placed in a press and a roller would push ink through the holes, creating a copy underneath. Now, if you think about it, the electric pen was the precursor to the photocopiers that we use today. Edison even marketed it mainly to law firms, insurance companies, and other offices that required documentation drafted in duplicate and triplicate. He called it the Electro-Autographic Press. After two years of making and selling them himself, Edison contracted Western Electric Manufacturing Company to begin producing them going forward. By 1877, he expected Western Electric to make at least 200 electric pens each month. Edison would then earn a royalty on each pen sold. To broaden his audience, though, he even pitched his electric pens toward average buyers with promises of all kinds of flyers, blueprints, contracts, and personal correspondence that would be so much easier to produce with his invention, rather than using the current analog tools, of course. Unfortunately, the device didn't find much footing. Office clerks found it cumbersome and unwieldy, while the wet cell battery that powered it required too much maintenance. Five years after its debut, competing mechanical pens started to hit the market, ones that didn't need batteries to operate. They quickly overtook Edison's invention and relegated it to nothing more than a historical footnote. Until Samuel O'Reilly got his hands on it. O'Reilly was from Waterbury, Connecticut, and had moved to New York sometime in the 1880s, where he had started working as an illustrator of sorts. He took one of Edison's automatic pens and realized that it could be modified for his own purposes. And so over the course of 15 years, O'Reilly tweaked and updated Edison's original design, developing a new kind of tool that incorporated an ink reservoir directly into the pen. Now, the needle wouldn't just punch a hole, it would push the ink into it as well. He earned a new patent for his contraption as well, in 1891. This made O'Reilly's job much easier on his hands, and on his clients. What used to take him hours, now only took minutes, 
with the ability to perforate his canvas of choice 50 times a second, though he didn't work with paper or wood or linen. He exclusively illustrated on skin, forearms, legs, chests, necks, anything the client wanted inked. You see, Samuel O'Reilly was a tattoo artist, and his brand new invention, the tattoo machine or tattoo gun, was based on Edison's electric pen. And it not only turned O'Reilly into an overnight success, but it changed the future of the tattoo industry. In fact, the tattoo guns used today aren't too far removed from what Samuel invented back in 1891. Thomas Edison didn't create his motorized pen with the intention of revolutionizing how tattoos are made. But to paraphrase an old saying, one person's trash is another person's tattoo gun. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.